Ads, schmads. If you don't want ads, that's okay. Choose the Dave McWilliams Plus option on Apple Podcasts. And hey, presto, no ads. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It is time for the podcast. That pub noise in the background is John buying Caio Benicio, a pint Caio Benicio. You will know. If you are Irish, you'll know this name. You didn't know it this time last week. You do know it now. He is the Brazilian Deliveroo driver who got off his bike when he saw a man stabbing a child on Parnell Square and plucked your man over the head with his motorbike helmet and in so doing saved the lives of young children. And yep. he was on the radio saying he's in Ireland in order to raise money for his family over in Brazil. He's one of our many Brazilian immigrants. And somebody said, well, why don't we just have a GoFundMe group to buy Caio a pint? It is now, as we speak, John, up to 326 1,000 euros, yes, yeah. 174. That's a lot of points for Caio. He's going to have a head in them. He's going to have a big head in them. Anyway, we are going to discuss today. It's going to be all Ireland today, except we're going to go a little bit broader. But obviously, we want to discuss the riots, what happened on Thursday in Dublin, what is happening, the undercurrent, anti-immigration feeling. And for many, many years, Irish people said slightly, sort of gloriously, oh, we don't have that. This isn't part of our culture. Yeah. And now what we realize, we have a far-right movement. We have an anti-immigration movement. And this anti-immigration movement is growing. So we're going to talk about that. But it puts us, John, therefore, into the backdrop of what was happening internationally last week. We've Absolutely. Gert Filders. We have Javier, our friend from down in Argentina, yeah. with his libertarian stuff. We have this stuff in Ireland. What we have is evidence all the time of a growing, growing right-wing movement that it would be absolutely ridiculous, silly and short-sighted to say this isn't happening. Yeah. Or just dismiss this as, oh, well, these guys just have a... Did you see who was those, the sort of geezers who were doing it? You shouldn't listen to them, right? Yeah, but when yeah. you see buses burning in Dublin, when you see Lewis's burning in Dublin, when you see Irish cops, the Irish Guardi being attacked by people who seem to hate the guards more than the immigrants. Yeah, I don't really get that was bit anti, either. It's all about anti-state. It's all about anti-state. And you know you know the way I, I love looking at international news? 
on everything from China to Turkey to Russia to Al Jazz in the Middle East, the whole lot. This was big, big story. Oh, yeah, story. This, it's a big, huge, big story. Huge, huge story. I got, I got a, speaking of Argentina, I got a text from Martin in Argentina. He says, he says forget Argentina. He says, what the fuck is going on in Ireland? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But the irony, and the, the irony that I love was the fact that it's Caillou, an immigrant, who kind of saved the day well, in, in many ways. You're absolutely right. So basically what you have, you have two immigrants. There was also a French student, a 17-year-old student who disarmed the guy. So you yeah. have an Algerian guy was the attempted murderer, right? Yeah. You have a Brazilian guy clocks him in the head and a French guy disarms him, yeah. right? So what you have is a sort of a picture of North inner city Dublin. Yeah. It's a multi-ethnic area, multi-racial area. The society here is absorbing in yeah. more immigrants per head than almost anywhere else in Europe. And, of course, we have a dysfunctional housing system. So you put those two together, and naturally people say, well, hold on a second. These guys are getting houses, we're not. Mm. And you have the undercurrent. But what I want to talk to you, John, about is, we're going to talk to Kevin Cunningham in a few minutes about the right wing in Ireland. Who are they? Where do they live? What do they do for a crust? If they do anything for a crust, and are they a significant and a significant movement? Yeah, and isn't it amazing though, Mac, that the destruction really took Dubliners and all of us by surprise? And as you said, it's people all around the world were seeing these like Lewis in, in flames and buses yeah, in flames. Yeah. I have been reading a fascinating book, John. I know you think this is very odd that... I react to a riot by reading a book, right? Sticking his head in a book. I kind of, but it's a fascinating book by a guy called Elias Kinetti, which won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1981, and it's called Crowds and Power, and it is an unbelievably brilliant book. I'll just read you some of the Iris Murdoch, the great English novelist. Yes. She was actually English, but she was actually born in Merrion Square. She was born oh, in Ireland, right? There you go. She was Anglo-Irish, right? She says, one is certainly confronted here with something large and important, an extremely imaginative, original, massively documented theory on the psychology of crowds, a great original work. Now, won the Nobel Prize, right? Elias Kinetti was a Romanian, okay? Mm. He wrote in German. He was an immigrant to Germany. He wrote in German. He was an incredibly brilliant, brilliant person, right? This book was, I'm going to really name drop here now, yeah. was recommended to me by Brian Eno, no less, okay? <laughs> there you no go. less. I had a conversation with Brian Eno and we were talking about books and he gave me a list of books, and this was one of them. And right. it's unbelievably good. And it's so germane to what happened, right? It's why people behave in a crowd as we do. So the first point Kennedy makes is that we hate to be touched. If you, as humans, have this very, very weird relationship with touch. Right. So if you, for example, rub up against somebody, well, you might do because you might be a little bit of frotter, but I mean, if you're not frotting, <laughs> if you rub up against somebody accidentally on the dart, you say, yeah. oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. sorry. Yes, your your yeah, immediate yeah. reaction is to say sorry, right? Yeah. Humans always create space around each other. We we use touch as a defense mechanism, right? And this is the, the original evolutionary reason for touch was to be actually, these were dangerous things, right? Yeah. So humans naturally don't like to touch strangers. Kennedy starts with that, but he says, something weird happens to us when we surrender to the crowd, then we love touch. We, we, we abandon our individuality and we subsume our individuality into the collective, which is the crowd. And he sources this deep in the idea that humans are pack animals, that our evolutionary past is incredibly important to us in many ways. And then he looks at 
the importance of crowds, why people behave as they do in crowds. Now, Kinetti, just to give you a bit of background, was a Jewish refugee. His parents were killed or his family were killed in the Holocaust. So he was looking at the crowd phenomenon that was Nazism. Yeah. And he was thinking, why did this happen, right? But he goes very, very deep into small crowds and big crowds. The first thing is the crowds want to grow. And I found that amazing. And it's true, right? Once a crowd starts, people join them very quickly. And that's why all these young fellas, right? There's, a, there's, a, there's an urgency in the crowd. The crowd wants to grow. Is, is, that a, is that a kind of the psychology of kind of missing out? Is that part of that? It's part of how humans, once you surrender, once you say, I am part of this gang, yeah. you want the gang to get bigger. Yeah. Right? And this goes, you want to be part of something. You want to be part of something. That's the yeah. first thing. The crowds always want to grow. And you see that. If you look at what happened on Thursday night, right, the crowd wants to grow as soon as it comes together. Mm. The second thing is that in a society like Ireland, which is hierarchical, it's class-based, all these things we know, right? Yeah. The crowd is unbelievably equal. When you're in a crowd, you're equal. This is why football fans love football fans. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. You yeah. see football fans going in, you see posh people, you see poor people. They're coming together with this unified purpose and underlying the crowd is equality. And maybe the crowd is the only place in a person's life where they feel equal, right? Yeah, okay. So this is another incredibly, incredibly deep human urge to be part of a crowd, okay? The, the the next thing is the crowd loves density. It loves to be packed, right? The the more dense the crowd, and this is, again, the opposite of what humans normally are, yeah. which we don't like touching each other. Fucking hate crowds. Right. I, like, I hate okay. being in the middle of a crowd. You, you hate being in the middle, but yeah. lots of people love it, and the yeah, crowd yeah. loves density. And also the crowd loves direction. It loves to be directed by somebody or a bigger idea. Mm. So what you see is the psychology of crowds materializing on the streets of Dublin. Also, crowds love destruction. Every single crowd phenomenon is characterized by destruction, by physical destruction. They love smashing things. They love the noise of destruction, which is why they love smashing glass. Every single riot crescendos with mm. an orgy of destruction. That's, it's, and, it's, and why do people... Certainly saw that on Thursday. So, but why do people who in their normal life... And you see the people who've been arrested for them. Yeah. There have been people who've been working there. They're not all young fellas on, on North Face jackets, right? Yeah. Right. But why do those people lose themselves in a crowd to get to our M&M moment of lose yourself? Yeah. Always a little pop reference there, John. <laughs> and fascinatingly, Canetti talks about the extraordinary role of fire in crowds, that so many crowds articulate their destruction in fire. And this goes really deep into humans' relationship with fire because we've been using fire for about 200,000 years. Yeah. Right? The fire is the key technology that yeah. changed yeah, us, yeah, right? Yeah. So fire has totally changed us. And that's why the Burning Man, all these religious things, like Burning Man, all yeah. these... all the, Incredibly the, symbolic. The tech bros all burn Burning Man at the end. Yeah. And a, a riot loves fire. And it's because fire signals destruction, it signals the crescendo. And tends to what typically happens is the fire signals, as you said, the end of the riot. Yeah. Once yeah. the thing goes up in flames, that's it. And people sit back and watch it. And I found this incredibly fascinating. He also talks about, I mean, I'm only touching on the book, right? Mm, mm. But he talks about a crowd loves destruction. Destruction usually is the end point of the crowd. But a crowd also loves persecution. So in the crowd, you feel persecuted. You are part of a persecuted group. 
which right. is why Liverpool fans feel persecuted when they go to see Man City or Man United, right? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Just think about it, right? And these it's guys... worse for Leeds, I'd say. Well, well, stop that now. Stop that. You've, you've noticed my Leeds references are becoming significantly less yeah. less flahool and my Shamrock Rovers references are going through the, uh, the roof because that particular crowd is a successful crowd. But... If you think about it, like, you know, people going to watch Leinster and Munster, right? Yeah. We know what drives Munster rugby is persecution. We know that, right? <laughs> and what drives Leinster rugby is a sense of persecution, yeah. right? That nobody likes us. And the same for football crowds, but the same for the crowd on Thursday night. Yeah. They feel persecuted. In the crowd, they are equally persecuted by something out there. And because the crowd wants to grow, what it really hates are institutions that stop it growing. And the institution that stops it growing on Thursday are the cops. Yeah. So the, all the anger of the crowd is turned to the cops, to the Guardi. And you saw that. It wasn't immigrants yeah, they were after. It was, it was really the, awful. It was what was in front of them trying to police the crowd were the Guardi. So if you look at all these things, what Kennedy is talking about, like, and then he goes into, the book goes into mainstream religion and political movements and all this. But what I was fascinated by was the role of the crowd in subsuming people and individuals into this extraordinary energy called the crowd, which manifests itself with people doing things that they would not normally do. Yeah. And that's the key. You know, the other thing that Kinetti talks about is the crowd requires symbols, right? They require totemic symbols, right? Mm. What is the symbol that they have? It's a uniform, it's a commonality. In soccer, it's a symbol, it's a team, or it's a badge, or a flag, or all that sort of stuff. The flag being so important, right? And when you, when you put all these things together, and the power of fire, and the fact that the destructiveness of crowds, and the fact that humans crescendo at the destruction, what we're talking about, we're going really far back into the hunter-gatherer that mm. we are. You know the way we think as humans that we're so sophisticated, and over the last thousands of years, we've become cultured and cultivated, and... You know, we have empathy and communality. Yeah. Actually, deep down, we're a pack animal. But when you're saying... That's the fascinating thing. Yeah, yeah, and it is absolutely fascinating. But what you're saying as well is that the when the individual surrenders to the crowd, they're also surrendering their responsibility. Exactly. And then it becomes, it's the responsibility absolutely right. of, and of the crowd. And therefore, therefore, be, so come back to, you don't like being touched. Mm. Now you like being touched. Mm. You don't like being in a crowd. Now you're in a pack. All that individual responsibility is subsumed to the greater sense of persecution, yes, yeah, yeah. right? To the greater sense of movement of the crowd. What direction are we moving in together? And this explains looting. Lots of people think that looting is thievery. And yes, it is. But looting is also an orgy of destruction. Looting yeah. is, it's not like thievery in one level, right? Because it's blatant, it's obvious. But the most important thing is looting is a collective move. Right? It's actually well, it's the most people rob in private. Okay. The very essence of robbing and thievery yeah. is that it's a private act and you keep it secret and you don't tell anybody. Yeah. Whereas looting yeah. is public thievery. And what's driving it isn't just acquiring the stuff for free. Yeah. It's the destruction of the crowd. Looting is like fire. It's like setting the buses on fire. It's all part of the innate It's a sense of control. We control the streets now, so we can do whatever we want. We can do whatever we want, and we are growing. And therefore, when the cops come to stop us, it's the affront is we are affronted by your efforts to stop us. Yeah. But what it all comes down to, and that's the, the fascinating thing, is that crowd dynamics are part 
of human psychology and crowd dynamics are part of the human lived experience, right? We are a crowd species. Mm. And therefore, what we try to do is all the time is it's this battle in our heads between our ego, and I mean the ego, not yes, the idea yeah. of I'm an egomaniac. Yeah. Our ego isn't you yourself, the soul, the innate being, yeah. and the crowd you belong to. And it's this constant battle in our heads of who are we? Are we more part of the pack? Or are we more individual? And then, of course, there's always the individual who stands out. And Kennedy's book goes in, talks about them as survivors and all this. Just on that then, I, I was going to, like, there are leaders then of the pack. There are leaders of the pack, yeah. So where do they come from? And and do they see themselves as almost separate to the pack or do they derive their power from the pack? They derive their power from the pack. So all megalomaniac leaders understand pack psychology. Yeah. That's what drives them. They understand that once you have people organised in a pack or a crowd or a movement or a party or a collective organisation, you can push them in directions that you could never push an individual. This is mm. the key, right? Because individuals have qualms. Individuals have scruples. Individuals have guilt. A crowd has no guilt. Like all those innate personal characteristics that define us as humans and as fathers and brothers and husbands and all, the, all those things that define ourselves become subsumed into the crowd. And therefore, the crowd dynamic take over. And that dynamic, as you said, is an irresponsible dynamic. Yeah. But the crowd feels it's responsible because the crowd is energised by a bigger moment, by a bigger idea. In this case, it's anti-immigration, or in this case, it's our flag, or what's it like to be a yeah. real Irish person. I'm a real Irish person, you're not a real Irish person. But whatever it has, what it allows us to do is become a totally different person. And this is what has always intrigued me about watching English football supporters, right? Mm -hmm. Is that sometimes after England go on the complete berserko in, you know, let's say they go to France and they go yeah. completely mental, right? In a crowd, yeah, defined by white shirts, right? And then these fellas get nailed uh, by the coppers. And then you suddenly have, you know, you know, John Davis of Little Ramsbottom in Buckinghamshire, uh, with no previous uh, convictions, is actually a trainee solicitor, right? Yeah. And you think... What the fuck happened, John Davis? The trainees in this no reason convictions, and is you know a member of the Salvation Army or something like this. Well, I, and I, then he just goes mad in the crowd. Well, I, I tell you, years ago uh, when I was working, with, I was working with a guy called Cicero, who's a good name. <laughs> yeah, he was a Scottish uh, Scottish singer, but he was signed by the Pet Shop Boys and their label, and uh, his kind of entourage of people were all Arsenal supporters, but they weren't. Arsenal supporters as such, they were the the firm, the Arsenal firm. Okay. And I got into a mad conversation one. They were nice, lovely fellas. And they were all kind of Greek and Turks and, you know, all yeah, from that North part. North London, of, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I got into a great conversation with one of them. And, I was, and this is the early 90s, the height of football hooliganism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm saying... That's before Ecstasy, John. Yeah, Do you know yeah. what? Ecstasy made them all into lovely, smiley ravers. That's true. Yeah. But I'm saying to him, like, what is it that drives you? What, like, I, I don't get it. And he was saying, exactly as you're saying, 
And this guy was, you know, he had some money in his pocket. He worked for the pet shop boys. He had things going on. Yeah. yeah. And he was saying, yeah, I can make a phone call. I can have 2,000 lads around me. I have my gang. I have my crowd. And I love going to the matches, marching down the street. There's a sense of belonging. Yeah. Well, this is what it's all and about. I, I, it was just an incredible explanation of when he we went on for hours talking about it. But how he was explaining the whole thing. The, 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 but you see, this is exactly the thing. And the bizarre thing about the crowd is it dissipates quickly. This is the interesting thing. Yeah. So it comes together with this massive energy. It wants to grow. It wants direction. It's persecuted. It's us and them. As you said, your mate, me and my lads, my 2,000 lads yeah. marching down Highbury's Main Street or wherever, wherever they march in, Highbury and Islington, wherever they are, right? Uh, and then the game is the totemic moment of destruction, yeah, right? Yeah. Then it just dissipates. Then it, it, the crowd disappears as quickly as it emerges, yeah. right? But they need the symbolic destruction. They need that moment, which is why they needed a fight, those English guys. Yeah. They needed a scrap yeah. to have, okay, that's the moment of destruction. I'm going to throw a brick through a window and then it's all over. Yeah. Then we yeah, go home yeah. and we, we eat our tea. tea. Exactly. <laughs> uh, when I look at the guards' reaction, I sincerely hope, and I'm sure this has happened, that the guards are deploying loads and loads of psychologists, people who understand crowd theory, all this understand, because it seemed to me, although our urge is to, you know, go in with battens against those young fellas, yeah. right? That is the urge. It's justice. It's they're meeting this out against us. Yeah. We're going to meet this out against us. The way us. the French do it. The way the French do it. And the Spaniards yeah. and everybody. Yeah. And, and there's a, definitely a place for that. There's also a place for this crowd dynamic to see, you know, does it dissipate as quickly as it emerges? Yes, punish them. I mean, what you should do. I always think a society, particularly a society now where everyone's got a PPS number. If you're, for example, charged with vandalism, you just pay more taxes. Yeah. Imagine that. Because you, you can identify. You That's it. You, you, you're going to pay 10% more tax for the next eight years. Right? Or if you're on benefits, you're not going to get them. Right? Yeah. And yeah. so it's, it's to link your responsible citizenship to something greater. Yeah. I mean, I think all this is going to come, yeah. by the way. I think technology is going to allow this sort of pinpointed justice, right? It may well be a difficult, maybe opening in a whole different kind of worms. Ooh, yeah. But yeah. it's an interesting way to look. But who were these guys? Who are these guys? Well, I tell you what, we're going to talk to Kevin Cunningham, our pollster, who yeah. has done work on this. But just if you are interested in this, the book is Elias Canetti's Crowd and Power, the 1981 Nobel Prize winning book for literature. It's an absolute gem. It's an absolute gem. Now, let us go to Stony Batter to talk to Kevin Cunningham because he has done lots of work on who these guys are, where they live and what they're all about. Kevin Cunningham is on the line. The man who knows all things about Irish politics. He's suffering a little bit. Apparently he was playing poker last night and uh, a run of bad form prompted <laughs> a move for a bottle of whiskey and it all went pear-shaped yeah. at about 4am. It's always a good move, that. Morning, Kev. You're looking particularly sweet. <laughs> thanks very much. Yeah, thanks. Unfortunately, the, uh, the whiskey did not improve the quality of the cards. In fact, I think it has just improved my perception of those cards more than anything else. Well, we were just talking about those sort of characters you know well, who actually, in m many things in life, are just plot along, but they excel in cards. John and I have a couple of mates like that, and they've devoted an unfeasible amount of their adult life 
to uh, to poker, <laughs> and they and they always come up trumps. Anyway, Kevin, let us talk about the only issue that Irish people are talking about right now, which is the riots in Dublin, the far right, the movement, the reaction, the fact that this maybe changes everything for the political cycle in terms of putting law and order right front and centre. Explain to me, Kev, you've done analysis of the far right in Ireland. Who are they? Where do they live? What is going on? And are they a force, a real force, or are they a riotous force? Yeah. Okay. So one of the things at the outset to to remember is that Ireland doesn't have, like in in electoral terms, Ireland doesn't have a strong far right. Like in the last election, they got 0.2% of the vote which is nothing more than, you know, a couple of candidates getting their friends and family out to vote for them. Effectively, electorally speaking, they're on zero, right? But that doesn't mean that there is sentiment out there. You know, we saw these riots and I've done polls before which asked people, you know, would you vote for an anti-immigration party, which is essentially what the far right is. Like, if you simplify the whole thing, it's just about immigration. Uh, And about 9% of the public said, yeah, that they would. So there is definitely this vote out there that's that's significant. And historically speaking, other academics, uh, Ona Mali wrote a piece, I think back in 2008, which basically said that Sinn Féin was where that far right vote was. And it was, and the reason why Ireland didn't have it was because it sat within Sinn Féin and that kind of held things together a little bit. And so from that perspective, some people might say, oh, well, Sinn Féin's growing now and maybe they're losing control over that particular demographic because, you know, Sinn Féin are definitely moving towards the centre ground of politics. I don't necessarily believe that. So I wanted to look into this and just to answer your, your question. Uh, I wanted to look into this in, in, in more detail to understand, like, who are these voters and, and generally who, what do they stand for and that sort of thing. So basically, I, I put a couple of questions in my poll, which asked people, what, you know, whether they harbored sort of those anti-immigration attitudes. That's whether they felt that, um, say, immigrants either undermined Irish culture or enriched it. Obviously, those that said it was undermining people's attitudes towards more refugees and also the kind of populist element, which is quite important for this, which actually most Irish people are quite populist, but it's it's sort of like whether you think politicians are corrupt and all that sort of stuff, right? So combining those two can give you a definition of some of someone who's probably going to be far right. And in fact, when you look at their left-right, when they place themselves on the left-right scale, they do overwhelmingly put themselves on the furthest right in terms of that left-right scale. So again, to answer your question, I did one of these regression analyses in which you you you, you take that variable, you try to understand, okay, these are, are my far-right voters, 10% of the electorate look a bit like this. And they also think immigration's one of the top two most important issues in the country. And then you compare that against demographics and all of those sort of stuff as well. So one of the things which is quite interesting in Ireland is that we also have independent candidates. And my pet theory is that the reason we don't have a big far right party is because we have independents. And it's it's the independents that are preventing them from getting a foothold because, you know, if we forced the likes of, say, Matty McGrath, independent uh, TD in, in, in Tipperary, and, and his kind of similar candidates into a party, as might happen under another electoral system, that would force up this kind of far right vote and a kind of an, a, a sufficient far right party. So anyway, the regression analysis showed that, yeah, exactly this. People who support independent candidates are fit exactly within this demographic. And, and, and is this because the independents can kind of freelance on local issues they can tap in? So basically, if you're a member of a party, you've got to sign up to a suite of beliefs. And that suite of beliefs 
inherently is kind of centrist because it has to actually throw a big net over a wide variety of people and kind of forge an idea down the centre. So if you're left, you're kind of centre-left. If you're far left, you're kind of centre-far left. But the independents are sort of like freelancers and they can mooch around and if there's a local issue and if they see a little problem down here, they can genuflect to that. Is that, is that what's happening? That is definitely an interesting thing. I, I, I've never thought of that angle. It's quite good. But another one... Thank I you, think Kevin. <laughs> but uh, one of the things I think is quite interesting as well is like, if you're voting for an independent, you're already quite populist anyway. You've already said, well, I don't like the political parties, the political system itself. So you're almost... So a subset of that independent vote is basically opting out of the, the normal way of politics and saying, I'm not really yeah. getting anywhere. And then there's a second thing, I think, which also overlaps where... Like, I don't want to, like, that kind of right anti-immigration stuff is almost like, I have to be very careful about how you say this, but that kind of local interest, I guess, that kind of local focus, that kind yeah, of... Yeah, yeah, like, it's, so, so it's, it's a local house that has been used by immigrants, or it's a local, for example, yeah. hotel that used to be a hotel, exactly. and it's now with immigrants, and there that... So it sparks the local. But what, another interesting thing is not just the local nature of it, are the lack of representing the bigger parties. But the fact that we're kind of established, there's a 10% vote in this. And 10% in our democracy is a huge amount of voters in terms of what you can do with that, in terms of power. Are they young or old? Yeah, so this is the this is the thing that totally surprised me. So obviously the, the independence thing was the, was the fascinating thing that I thought, well, there, prove my point. But they're young. That's the, that's the really weird thing. So obviously education is very important, but you know, the, the, the demographic group, when you control for all this sort of stuff, for which there's the most likely group of people who hold these uh, views, are 18 to 24. Okay, so let's explore that. That's really important because typically the shorthand is your average right-wing anti-immigrant person is going to be older, is going to feel more threatened, is going to come from an Ireland that was much whiter, much more religious, much more locally, much more regionally based, all that sort of stuff. What you're saying is, those people in their 60s and 70s are not far right and they're not right. Not just that, they're the least likely. That's fascinating. So the so, older uh, people are the least likely to vote for far right. That's, 65 plus, uh, once you account for all, the, all these features, 65 plus is the least likely of all those. The second, the second biggest category after 80 to 24 is 25 to 34. So it's, it's a direct age uh, relationship, which is interesting, I think. I think it's something that completely surprised me, but there, there is all this sort of other sort of weird in, and an interesting psycho, psychology sort of literature, uh, which isn't really related to politics, which talks about risk aversion, particularly younger people being more risk prone. And again, it's a it's a male thing as well. So younger men more kind of more interested in kind of the more risky options. When you transfer that into politics, it sort of suggests that well, they're obviously be more likely to you know, vote for a more risky option, something that's more likely to kind of change the system, I guess. They're also, in this misinformation age, much more likely to be on social media than their 60-year-old dad or their 60-year-old uncle. So to what extent is social media a galvanizing force as well? Okay, then uh, this is the other really interesting thing. I think this is a really important point. So one of the other variables I included in the model was whether or not people consumed a particular website called Gripped Media. I don't know if you guys know Gripped Media. Yeah, Mark. we know it is. Yes. Yeah. Plus, John subscribes. <laughs> I do keep a BDI on them, I have to say. John, John is my eyes and ears in the real world when I'm sitting down here in the basement. Him and Breitbart. <laughs> exactly. Go on, tell me about these geezers. Yeah, it could be, you could argue it is the kind of Irish equivalent of, of Breitbart in some, in some respect. It is definitely a different media network. It, it, it focuses on uh, immigration issues and that sort of stuff. But 
people who consume grip media are again much more likely to to fall into this category of this kind of far right voter or whatever. So there is this additional effect. So notwithstanding all the other stuff, the fact that people are younger, lower educational attainment is also important, though not as important as age, which is quite interesting. And this media consumption and then voting for independent candidates. Those, those last two are actually probably the two most significant features that are actually driving this uh, more generally. So, so you know, it's it, it's no surprise that the hero of the day for a lot of these people is Conor McGregor because he actually fits this entire demographic in many, many ways. It's what you're talking yeah. about. And he's out on the media now and he's stirring it up. But anyway, that's another thing. But let me come back to this idea, right? Most Dubliners were shocked by what we saw last Thursday. The, the aggression, the violence, the fact that the Guardi seemed to be overwhelmed, the fact that the Guardi didn't react in any particularly aggressive way, the fact that they actually tried to, it seems to me, at least say this will dissipate over time, right? What is that telling us about where politics is going to go now? Because it does seem to me that this is an all-change moment. Nothing is going to be the same after this. Yeah, I mean, a new political party was only registered uh, the other day. I think it was called the Irish People Party. And so inevitably this sort of stuff can take hold. I've been doing quite a lot of opinion polls, local constituency polls, knocking on doors in various different kind of more working class areas. And what I have noticed, at least, while there isn't a significant support still for these sort of parties, some of the particularly sort of areas which have higher levels of deprivation, they're not really engaging at all with with the political process. They're not really that strongly affiliated with Sinn Féin. I mean, those that do engage with it do support Sinn Féin, but there's a lot of people that are completely disengaged. So it is quite possible that things might change in that particular area. But I kind of think more generally, I mean, this general rise of kind of relatively right-wing parties, let's say this kind of anti-immigration political movement, it's an unstoppable trend, really. It's quite inevitable, I think. It's it's long running since 1990, if you if you go back right across Europe. If you remember Jean-Marie Le Pen in, in 2002 and Pim Fortune in, in the Netherlands. And obviously today, the, in, most recently, the Dutch voted for the Freedom Party, who, who actually won that particular election over there. I think this underlying trend is kind of inevitable. And I think the reason why it's inevitable is because, historically speaking, Working class areas were more homogenous. A lot of people worked in the same sort of jobs, particularly in you know industrial mining towns, let's say in the UK. There was singular demands, tight-knit communities, and it was easier for the left to kind of dominate those areas. Even though I think underlying all of this is that we all have a slightly different psychological predisposition towards left and right. If you don't have that kind of closely knit communities, if you have more atomization, then it actually allows people's own psychological predisposition which might be a function of you know, their own experiences or whatever it might be, to drive the type of political party and the type of movement that they might support. And I think that's why over the last, you know, we're talking about 20 or 30 years, the left has steadily been declining and in its wake has been this just general rise and continued rise of these right-wing parties uh, in these working-class areas. Because I think this is just, it's just the atomization and the individualization of, of people, which allows them in some way to, to reflect their voting choice with their own kind of personal makeup. And, and there's been a lot of work on you know, the big five personality traits and Jonathan Haidt's moral foundations. And I think that's a lot of what's driving a lot of this sort of stuff. And obviously immigration, you know, is the sort of thing that they're using and leveraging quite effectively. And I think that's basically, it's, it's going to continue. And you can't really reverse immigration. Like my whole 
PhD, which was originally about meant to be about why is there no fire right in Ireland, but that was actually rejected as a title. <laughs> so obscure to do. So yeah, so the obscure topic I, I focused on was politicization and depoliticization of immigration, which was more interesting and relevant in other European countries. And it was the sort of thing I got into a bit of trouble with in the UK when I was doing some work with the with the Labour Party over there. When I was writing these kind of notes about how to depoliticize immigration, saying basically you, you can't. I don't know if you remember, the Labour Party tried to have this adoption strategy where they tried to become as anti-immigrant as the Conservative Party to try to get rid of the issue. Of I remember the, that, yeah. And you can't. You, you basically can't do it. So my my topic, basically the focus of my thing was how do you depoliticize it? And left-wing parties can uh, depoliticize it sometimes if they focus on integration. It's very hard but, you know, uh, no, no one's kind of questioning the nationality of, let's say, Simon Zebra or whatever, you know. It's once people see people being integrated, yeah. it becomes a non-entity. It doesn't become a big issue. So it's integration at the heart of it, which actually is the sort of things that resolves it. But it's a hard thing. It's not as easy as, uh, you know, as, as raising the salience of the issue and, and, and talking up immigration as an issue as they do. In, in be- be- before we go, do you think that Ireland, as a result or as a consequence of this, will have a much more heavy-handed riot police, which a lot of people want, and will have a second look at the source of this problem, which is immigration, that they will actually, the politics of the centre will move towards these concerns and say, this is an issue uh, and we are actually going to change our immigration policy as a result of this and give a small victory to the far right in order to preserve the center. Yeah, I think I think that's that that always happens. It's a, it's the adoption strategy. In fact, even in Ireland in 2006, we had this referendum on uh, immigration. I don't know if you remember this one it was introduced by Michael McDill, but part of the justification for that was to prevent and it was stated in the doll to prevent the potential rise of the far right. So the adoption strategy is the thing that always happens. The extent to which it's actually successful quite limited. I mean, you can see they've, they've been trying the adoption strategy in the Netherlands for 20 years. And and, and Gert Wilders won it the other day. But do you think if we're, we're in an electoral cycle now, we're looking at, what, 24 months maximum, maybe 18 months out, is this the issue? Well, yeah, this is definitely an issue. It's definitely a top three issue. I've been polling every month. What do people think is the most important issue? You go back two years ago, immigration was only 4% of people. Now it's like quite regularly 19% identifying it as an important issue. That's yeah, it's it's top four. Number one, housing. Number two, health. Climate change and 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 this kind of compete with one another. Oh, cost of living, sorry, is number three, and then this immigration is usually number four. We'll see whether it continues to develop. One of the things is obviously that you can't. One of the things that's going to be quite interesting next year is obviously the European elections, and we know the next European election cycle is going to have this massive shift towards the right because the Green parties did very well last time, right across Europe, particularly in Germany. Next time. The AFD are doing really, really well right now. So it's going to be a massive shift towards the right, right across Europe in, in, in the European parliamentary elections, which might, which might feed in then to the Irish elections, because if you then sort of have this sort of stuff percolating from within the system. We also have our local elections for which, uh, you know, you don't actually need as much of a, a significant vote to get elected because in some areas they're electing like sort of seven or eight individual candidates get elected per area, which means you know, the margin to actually get elected. Is yeah, it's low. very low. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if at the back of the local elections, maybe one of these guys gets elected somewhere and then that becomes a story because that's how this sort of thing feeds on itself in some respects through the promotion of, of what's happened here. I remember 
in the UK, the, the rise of UKIP happened all around by-elections. There was a series of by-elections in late 2013. They did relatively well. They didn't win these by-elections. But that became the yeah, story. Yeah, that became the story. And nobody really cared whether Labour was doing well or the Tories were doing well. It was this insurrectionist party. You know, this yeah. sort of, this sort of, the, and it, it, the insurrectionist is always more interesting because it's the new, it's the it's, different. It's, it's like, wow, we didn't see this, you know. Who is not going to be more interested in the new than the plodding? And then the dissenter, and then we've seen these guys before. And here we've got literally like you know what I've called the north-faced insurrectionist movement, right? It's 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 got a, it's got a uniform, it's got a it's it's got an attitude, all, all that sort of stuff. They've got vehicles as well, the little scooters. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah it's a it's yeah. a it's a north-faced scooter, grey tracky insurrectionist uh, movement, which you think and we all think could easily flip into something more significant. Yeah, uh, I I think it could. I, I think it's a it's a it's a reflection of this kind of what's going on in some of these areas. There, there is some withdrawal in some communities from Sinn Féin, let's say. And I think this could be a, this could be an example of the sharp end of some of that. Kevin, can I, can I just ask you are, you, are you saying that Sinn Féin have peaked in their popularity like a couple of years ago? I, you know, the funny thing is, I, I I think I wrote an article about Sinn Féin peaking before and then and then they went up again. So it's like, okay. I must admit, I, it's hard to tell in some respects. They have done particularly well whenever the cost of living has become a salient issue. That is that is definitely their thing, right? So when cost of living raises as an issue, as it did last year, Sinn Féin were on 37, 38% of the polls. As soon as that issue started to decline, Sinn Féin support did decline. So they if you were to think about an issue that really benefits Sinn Féin, it's cost of living. That's that's basically their, their issue. Immigration, they are not as easy on because they do have the are you Are you saying on Sinn Féin, though, some of their supporters are a part of that 10% who are anti-immigration, yet the, the Sinn Féin leadership is very pro-immigration, as far as I can see, and they're kind of caught in a brace there? I would say their leadership does reflect, let's say, the majority of the Sinn Féin vote. So the majority of the Sinn Féin vote, which is now a big vote, uh, is is generally speaking quite left-wing. The, the only distinction about them is that they don't seem to be as enthusiastic about climate change compared to anyone else on the left, let's say Labour, Solidarity or Social Democrats, for whom their vote is all... The, the, that's the big distinction between the Sinn Féin vote and the other vote within the left is, is the attitude towards climate change. Apart from that, but like redistribution, anything about left-wing politics, they identify as being on the left and all that sort of stuff. But you're right, there is a small proportion of that which is more conservative, uh, naturally enough. But there's a lot of non-voters out there. And generally speaking, a lot of the far right or whatever has, has, has often been the result of people engaging in politics for the first time. Historically, non-voters become very interested in politics and then and then go on. I mean, even in the Netherlands, like I, I do a bit of polling in, in, in other countries, including the Netherlands, like the PVV voters are really interested in politics. Like they're the most engaged voters. These uh, are Wilders in, people. Wilders people, yeah, exactly, yeah. Because they have they're, their issues and they're, they're animated by those issues and, and, they're, and they're fired up. Anti-immigration principally and, and anything in and around that sort of issue. Yeah, absolutely. So is it possible then, Kev, that an event and a riot like on Thursday night will spark all those people that have been apathetic about issues in politics over the years and get them more engaged now in, in politics in general. Yeah, that is that is very interesting. I mean, the reverse example of this, I think that's quite possible. The reverse example of this is when there was riots, Muslim riots, if I can call them that, in Sweden in 
just before the Swedish general election. Yeah. And that did lead to a response, you know, in, in let's say the anti-immigrant vote improved as a result. So, you know, I guess you could certainly argue that people will suddenly recoil from this sort of attitude in this immediate sense. In the immediate response to this, people might recoil, but perhaps what we have observed here is is further engagement because then people might recoil and then you create this national debate and then, you know, people find their positions, which I think, I tend to think, is a function of people's general psychological makeup in terms of where they're more likely to land on an issue like this. Like, are you fundamentally, at the end of the day, going to be more pro or anti-immigration will determine it in the long run, right? Yeah. In the short run, I think there could be this short run backlash effect, but the rising salience of that issue will just emerge as, as a consequence of this sort of stuff as well. All right, Kev, we will leave it there. Uh, as I said, you can go back to uh, nursing that head that has got the uh, it's got the look of five whiskeys about it on this. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk to you soon, Kevin. Take care. Brilliant. Thanks a million. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Kevin, interesting as always, but it seems to me there that Ireland is an outlier again. You know, when you're talking about the age group of 18 to 24 and then the 25s, the 35s or whatever it was, being more right wing in Europe, it's it were kind of seen to be a little bit different to Europe. But there, because all of Europe is, is shifting right with Git Wilders and all those guys. Well, I think what he's saying is that you would expect the anti-immigrant vote to come from the generation that is not used to immigration. Yeah. Like our parents, right? Yeah. And to a degree, our generation as well, right? But what you're seeing is that the older generation are much more tolerant, okay? Now, I think it's because they're much more inclined to go with the state, that they're much more inclined to go with the centre ground. They're much more inclined to go with the centre parties who are now more tolerant. What is happening amongst the young is, as he said, young men tend to be more risk-taking anyway. But also, there's the real issue, right? Is that immigrants are 
competing with young people in the housing market. I come back to this all the time, right? Mm. This is a real issue. Immigrants are probably competing with young people in the jobs market, right? So if you're old and middle class or older and middle class, you own your own house, right? Immigration economically is a massive plus for you, okay? Mm. Because you're, you know, Uber drivers come quickly and you're wait, there's waitresses and, and there's lounge people and boys. So all the, if you're a consumer of the service economy, mm. immigration is really good, right? If you're in the service economy or you're competing with immigrants in, you know, for example, the, the market for housing, the market for jobs, right? You have a quite different view. That's the first thing. The second thing is there is this toxic masculinity that is abroad amongst a lot of young fellas, right? Which is aggressive and it's absolutely fueled by social media. Yeah. Absolutely. So the older people are digesting, they're not listening to podcasts, radical ones like this one, John. Mm. They're not, but they're they're, they're digesting RTE and they're digesting the Irish Times and in England, you know, the Telegraph and the Financial Times and the Guardian, all these centrist or... or, Mainstream media. Mainstream media. Nonsense. Young fellas are, are... and it is young fellas, yeah. not really young girls. Young fellas are reading all sorts of other things. And then the third thing, I believe, is that as more and more right-wing parties emerge, we have to understand that immigration is an issue that threatens people, right? It's not just all racism, and it's not just... It is an issue that the, the, that, the, the, totally. the society is convulsing at a rate in which it never did before. The people look different, people behave different, and these things are very dislocating. And all you need, we go back to our Kinetian crowds, all you need is a persecution complex, right? Mm. All you need is to subsume your individuality to the greater crowd. All you need is momentum and direction, and social media has given the momentum. I mean, these things are organised online. There's not one great leader like in the past, who would stand up and orchestrate the crowd. Yeah. There's a whole series of inputs into the crowd. But what you're finding is that all over Europe, the right is on the increase. But increasingly in France, and it seems here in Ireland, that it's the younger people are voting right, which is not what you would have assumed 10 years ago. And maybe that's the thing, is the world's changing so quickly, John, that old assumptions are not surviving their impact with the real world. And that's maybe the lesson. This segment is brought to you by PwC. PwC Ireland is delighted to announce the expansion of its strategic AI collaboration with Microsoft into Ireland, involving the launch of the PwC Gen AI Business Centre enabled by Microsoft Technology. Now I have with me Martin Duffy, who's the head of Gen AI at PwC Ireland, a man who knows, but if he doesn't know, nobody knows everything about AI. Martin, how are you? David, very well. Great to be on the podcast. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Great to have you. Listen, let's get straight into it, right? Because people are asking me, particularly individuals, they're saying to me, you know, what is this going to do to me? You know, what what is AI going to do to my career, to my job, to my prospects? You know, what should I be prepared for? So... AI presents a unique challenge that we haven't actually really looked at or seen before in maybe the past 100, 150 years. It is a new capability. So as machines in the Industrial Revolution 150, 200 years ago 
we're a new capability. Now, Gen AI in particular represents not just point solutions, which is traditionally what IT has delivered, but it's got such a wide range of applications in every organization and in day-to-day -day life that it actually presents a brand new set of capabilities. And in the same way that 150 years ago, we had many, many wheelwrights, we have very few today, but they've been replaced by mechanics. So what Gen AI will do is it will change some of the roles that we have, but it will create new opportunities. So we've recently at PwC done a survey of Irish business leaders. And one of the really strong facts that came out of it was 82% of business leaders believe that Gen AI will either create more jobs or have a job neutral effect on the Irish economy in the next five years. So from a, an individual's point of view, there's nothing to be worried about with this technology. What it presents is opportunities. And in order to prepare yourself for the opportunities, you need new skills. And these skills are ones which a lot of us already have, but we've never had the opportunity to use. Okay, so what you're saying is that, look, look, this is the economic cycle. This is the relentless gales of creative destruction, as Schumper used to say. It's just, this is part of the thing. Something new happens, you adjust, you adapt. And then, in fact, you can thrive. So it's the check out the opportunities. Like, so that's the individual level. Martin, tell me about the organizations, because obviously organizations are big, large, sometimes bureaucratic structures do the same things tomorrow as we did today, the same things yesterday, but this will change that game. So organizations will adapt and change to these technologies. It won't be a total recreation of the organization from the ground up. There are some short-term things which Irish organizations will have to do. And what we've seen from our survey of business leaders and their attitudes towards Gen AI is that only 6% of organizations in Ireland actually have Gen AI or AI governance in general in place. Now, wow. this is quite concerning because there's a, a new law coming out from Brussels. It's in its final stages of negotiation, which is called the EU AI Act. And that introduces a regulatory regime for AI. It requires governance. That's going to be passed into law, we expect, before Christmas, with 24 months to implement. If the final negotiations end up where the draft is at the moment, the fines associated with breaches of this are up to 6% of global turnover. So they're absolutely wow. astronomical. And the way to avoid that is to ensure you've got good governance in place and ensure that you're looking at the responsible use of AI. And this whole concept of responsible AI is core to building trust. These technologies really require trust. They require trust in what goes into them, trust in what answers come out from them, and trust in how those answers are used. And so having a really good structure and approach to the responsible use of these technologies is the first thing that organizations should look at. Okay, Martin, just to conclude then, probably the big issue that's on people's minds is I get the idea it's a new technology. I get there's new opportunities. I get it's incredibly powerful. I understand the EU is trying to regulate because it's very powerful. We talked about responsibilities. 
is the big question then who gets to own this technology in the future? So that's that's a really important issue. So there are concerns about copyright and IP ownership, and there are concerns about whether something that's created by these systems. So perhaps you ask a generative AI system, such as ChatGPT, to create an image for you. That image is based on its learnings of other images that it has been trained on. Is it a brand new piece of artwork? There is an argument to say it is, but there's also an argument to say that, you know, it's built on the basis of other humans' work. So it's a very complex issue. And even when we look at things like liability around AI, that becomes really, really important as well. Again, the EU is starting to look at this, looking at the AI liability directive. They're looking at IP ownership. It's really one of these things where we as a society are going to have to take a step back and say, is this real creativity, in which case it's new and it's unowned IP, or is it actually the reuse of existing IP? And then that leads into questions of how do you measure that? What influence has artwork piece A versus artwork piece B had on the end product? That's extraordinary stuff, Martin. I am fascinated by this, as you can sort of hear. It's one of those big hinge moments in economics where everything changes. And we kind of look into the world and say, this is it. This is the future. And let's deal with it. So Martin Duffy, head of Gen AI at PwC Ireland. Thank you so much for that. Thank you, David. This segment was brought to you by PwC. Through the PwC Ireland Gen AI Business Centre, enabled by Microsoft, PwC is turning its AI experience and knowledge into business outcomes for its clients. The new centre will help boost Gen AI adoption, driving the necessary investment returns in a safe and secure way. This comes at a time of huge opportunity for businesses, but also at a time when technology needs to be applied with great responsibility. Visit their website at pwc.ie to find out more.